Hey, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Good to be back. We were gone a week, two weekends, but a, a week to Colorado and had just a wonderful time. I'm, I'm just even more convinced after a week and lows in the 40s and highs in the 70s, that's exactly what heaven's going to be like. I'm just really confident of that. But good to be back today. Really excited to be starting this series on the letter from James. Now, you know, isn't a preacher always supposed to say that when he starts a new series? I'm really excited. I mean, somebody's got to be excited about me doing this, right? But I'll tell you something, I I really am. I'm I'm like telling the truth. (laughs) Uh, You know, I have wanted to start James several times over the last several years. And I thought, I'm going to do a series on James. And I would get going on that. And then something would change or come up or we, the staff, we'd be moving in a little bit different direction. And so I would change and not quite get there. But uh, I think part of it is after what I've been through this year, I said, you know what? I've been wanting to do James. I'm coming back to James and and we're going to do that. And I'm excited about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm intrigued by the message. The message of James, you know, this is a little bit of an opinion, but I think James could be considered the hardest hitting book of the New Testament, maybe the Bible. I I, I mean, this isn't for wimps. James is going to get up in your grill. And he says, oh, you, oh, so you've got faith in God. Really? All right, well, let's, let's see then where that faith shows up. And he's going to walk us through some very practical ways of saying, if there's a real faith, then you're, you're going to see these things right here. I'm also intrigued by this book. I, I, I've wanted to know a little bit more, not just about the message, but the messenger. I'm intrigued by, by James, the, the, the person. You know who he is, right? If you don't, we're going to find out in just a few seconds. But uh, as I said a moment ago, I, th- I think another reason I'm drawn to this book is After what I've been through this year, you know, I've had one of those little reminders. We don't live forever, do we? I mean, that's just not going to happen. We end. And at that end, folks, there's an appointment with God. And and I just think to to live a day of your life, not an incredible awareness of what you're hurtling towards, this appointment with God is just just foolishness. And so I like James because... It's, it's a good measure. It's a, a good barometer. Okay, I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm a Christian. I have faith in Jesus. Okay? There, there, Jesus is living in me. Now, there was a time, right, when Jesus wasn't living in me. Now, wouldn't there, shouldn't there be a difference? Right? This is Randy with, with Christ living in his life. And this is Randy without Christ living in his life. There should be a difference. And say, well, what would that difference be? What would it look like? Boy, that's really where James is going to kind of help us measure and evaluate, like I just said, in some very practical uh, and, and, and very impactful ways. And so that's, these are some of the things that have drawn me to, to being excited about being in this letter. And w- boy, we're going to be in it for a while. If you're familiar with it, it's a short book of the, of the New Testament. It's only five chapters long. You can probably read it in 10 minutes. And I encourage you to do that this week. Read it a couple times. Get, get some ideas, maybe a memory verse. Get some questions so you, you kind of come to the message, you know, with, you know, an active listener. And uh, spend some time in it. But it's only five chapters long, and we're going to spend 13 weeks uh, in, in this book. Uh, that's going to take us all the way to Thanksgiving. Kind of weird to throw out a word like Thanksgiving right now, isn't it? But uh, we're, we're going to be here for a while. Now, for those of you that have been around for a while, you know that whenever I start a new series, particularly a series on a, on a book of the Bible, I liked in the, in the first message or two to kind of do an introduction 
You know, get, get a feel for the book as a whole. Get a, a feel for its context. Well, I'm going to kind of do that today. Although I'm not really looking at the book as a whole. And I'm not really looking at its context. Today, I want to look at the person. I, I want to look at James himself. I mean, if somebody's going to get up in my face, I want to know who they are. Have you ever said that? Who do you think you are? Well, that's what I'm trying to answer today. You know, when somebody gets up in your face, who do you think you are? I, I want us to know who James is. I want us to get a feel for this guy and this, I wouldn't say unique message of the Bible, but, but hard-hitting message of the Bible that he's going to bring to us. So we're going to start today finding out a little bit about this guy named James. Now, when I say that, there's a number of James in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, there's, there's four to five Jameses in, in the New Testament. And so our challenge is to figure out which one wrote this letter to us. Which one wanted us to know these things. And I put up here for us to kind of work through this, that, to kind of figure out. I put up here for us the James in the New Testament, okay? So our first James is the father of Judas. And I put in parentheses, not the betrayer. Gosh, wouldn't it have been awful in that day and age to be named Judas? I'm not that one. I'm not, I'm not, no, not him, okay? So this is, this is not the, not the betrayer. There's two Judases in the list of 12 disciples, okay? 12 disciples, two of them are named Judas. And when we are introduced to that Judas, it's just very casually, very quickly mentioned that his father was named James. So that, that's what we know about that James. Then we have James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Now this is a, this is a big James, this is James of the inner circle, James. You know, J Jesus had the 12 disciples, but inside those 12 disciples, he had a group of three, Peter, James, and John. They heard a little bit more. They saw a little bit more. They, they had some, some private times and, and, and got a little bit further, and they became all became leaders of the church. So this is a big James uh, that we're looking at here. He uh, is also uh, a, a disciple. And then we have... James, the son of Alphaeus, and go to the next screen. And we have James, the, the less. Wouldn't you like to be called the less? I'm, I'm, I'm the less. Uh, this James, the less, and by the way, it sounds a little bit like a slight. Well, yeah, it, it kind of is. Uh, this is in reference to the James in number two. Hey, everybody knows James of the inner circle. Everybody knows James of Peter, James, and John. I'm the other one. <laughs> I, I'm the lesser one that you don't know so much about. That was kind of his nickname. He's, he's an apostle. Okay, so 12 disciples. We have two Judases. We have two James. So he is apostle. He would have been a, a witness of the resurrection. The reason on the last slide I said number three, James the son of Alphaeus, and then said go to the next screen. Most people, most scholars believe that number three and four are the same person. That James the son of Alphaeus is also James the less, and I, and I happen to believe that too. So there, there are some places where they're lifted, listed in different places in different ways, but for the most part, it seems like they're the same person. And then we have James, the son of Joseph and Mary. You say, what Joseph and Mary? Joseph and Mary of your nativity set, man. The, the, the Christmas Mary and Joseph, which would, well, you say, wait a minute, then that would make James, yeah, the, the half-brother of Jesus, Yes, that, that, there is another James in the New Testament. He's the half-brother of Jesus. A lot of scriptures on him. Now, he did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. He did not believe he was the Messiah during Jesus' earthly life. 
did not believe in him. But after the resurrection, he did become a believer. And not only a believer, but, but he went on to lead the church in Jerusalem and probably become what I would, again, a little bit of an opinion statement, I would say probably one of the top three, maybe four leaders of the church in the, in the whole first century Christianity. So he, he really goes on to become pretty big. So now there's five James named for us, written about for us in the New Testament. Of course, our question is, which one sent us this letter? Okay, well, number one, James, uh, the first James, all we know about him is he was somebody's father. And that's all that's mentioned of him. Now, I'm not going to go into all this today because it's not really the, the purpose of this message. But there was certain criteria for ending up in the scriptures. You ever wondered that question? How does the book get into the Bible? How did one of these things get there? Well, there was a very strict set of, of requirements. One of them in the New Testament, they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And the church had to know they were an eyewitness of the resurrection. The church had to know who this person was. Well, as we look at that first James, we don't, we don't know anything about him. We don't know that, that he was an eyewitness. And if, if we don't know that, it's nowhere, it was nowhere recorded. The church didn't give us that information. So probably safe to assume this is not the James that we're looking for. Number two, now that's a very likely candidate. Obviously, we know this is an eyewitness of the resurrection. This is somebody close to Jesus. This is somebody with a lot of influence, uh, a, a lot of power, if you will. There's just one thing that disqualifies that James from being the writer of this book. He's dead. Hard to write a letter when you're dead, isn't it? James, of Peter, James, and John, James was the first apostle to be martyred for his faith. He was not the first Christian martyred for his faith. That was Stephen shown to us in Acts 7. But he was the first apostle who was killed. And that happened in AD 44. And this book was, this letter was written after that. So that takes number two. Then we have three and four, James the son of Alphaeus, James the less. And while this is an apostle, this is somebody who is an eyewitness of the resurrection. After Pentecost, this James kind of slips off the scenes for us. Now, I don't mean to imply he disappeared and didn't do anything. I, 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 he was very active, very involved in, in the ministry. But history just doesn't give us a lot. The church doesn't give us a lot. And so it's hard to say, okay, now this is who wrote that book. Be, be, because we have no connection in that sense. Then we have number five, who is, I would say, not only the likely candidate, but the very obvious candidate of who wrote this letter to us. Because... He is a follower of Christ at this point. He is an eyewitness of the resurrection. And he is one of the, if not the most influential leader of the church. In other words, when he writes this letter, and, and, and Paul wrote letters, Peter wrote letters. They, when they write this letter, the church receives it from the writer. And, and, and then when they believe, hey, this, this is from that person, then they disseminate it, disseminate it out to Christendom. They, they, they disseminate it out to all the churches. So they would have had to have a good confidence that this person is uh, of reputable character, of somebody who, who was that eyewitness, who's a great teacher. Well, James being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he would have been very well known. So this is the, the likely candidate, the half-brother of Jesus for writing this letter, which with that being the case, makes this first line, I, I think, just stunning, the first line of the book. Look what it says here. James, he's introducing himself, he's writing a letter to you and me, and he says, James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you see anything missing there? I do. Why doesn't he say who his brother is? I mean, this is a pretty good place to drop a name, isn't it? I mean, what better? Because I am the half-brother of Jesus. What you got? That, boom, that's my ace of spades. I mean, hey, you, you know what? We all drop a name sometimes, okay? I, I, we probably all know somebody who does that really obnoxiously. And we don't want to be considered like them. But, but we've all done it. Sometimes connecting yourself with somebody else using somebody else's name, that it gets you inside, it gets you an audience, maybe it, it gives you credibility. Sometimes somebody else's name can just do more in that moment than our own name can. And what better name to be connected with than to say, hey, my, my brother, yeah, that was Jesus. You know, why, why doesn't he throw that out there? And, and, and yet he doesn't. I think probably part of what's happening here is as we read this letter, as we study it, we're going to see that one of the, the dominant character qualities that James really wants us to grab a hold of in the Christian life is humility. And, and I think this is just a very natural way of expressing humility. I don't think this is manufactured. I don't think it's disingenuous. I think it's very authentic. It's very natural. He's not trying to prop himself up. He's not trying to get you to see how big and important uh, he is. He doesn't want you to know him as much as he wants you to know Jesus Christ. But, but he does more than not drop a name, doesn't he? No, he does something even more. He says, man, I am a, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm, I'm his servant. Can you imagine calling yourself a servant of one of your siblings? Some of you, that'd be the last thing you'd do on this earth is call yourself a servant of one of your siblings, right? And, and, and yet, that's, it, that's exactly what he does here. As a matter of fact, not only does James do that, but so does one of uh, Jesus' other half-brothers, a guy by the name of Jude. He wrote a, a letter that's the, the second to last in the New Testament, right before Revelation, a, a short letter, one page, called Jude. And uh, by the way, let me stop here and say this. Some of you might come from a a Catholic background, and, and I realize my mom grew up Catholic, my wife grew up Catholic, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school and found my wife. That's an interesting story. That We'll do that another time. But I'm pretty well versed in Catholicism uh, is, is what I'm trying to say. And, and so if you grew up with a Catholic background, me up here talking about Jesus and throwing out all these brothers just sounds a little short of heresy. You may be, shouldn't he be getting fired for this? Because the Catholic Church teaches what, what is referred to as the perpetual virginity of Mary. Not only was she a virgin at Christ's birth, but she remained a virgin. She did not have other children. Now, in the Catholic faith, you have two sources of authority. You have church teaching and you have the scripture. And in my opinion, kind of sadly, when you have two authorities, usually one can trump the other. And in that case... It's church teaching that trumps scripture. Because if you're wondering, well, now how are you saying Jesus had, had, had these brothers? And I, I didn't say that. The scripture says that. John chapter 7 verse 5. Mark chapter 3 verse 21. It's the scripture that refers to Jesus having this family, having, having these brothers. So, you know, in that case, the church teaching said, well, we're, we're just going to ignore scripture. And we're going to say this is what, what truth is. And I... I think that's unfortunate. We, we hold to one source of authority, and that's the Scripture. Our, our information, our, our knowledge comes from that. So, yeah, praise the Lord for that. That's a good thing. 
It's always good to know what we're counting on, where we're going to for, for answers. And so that's where I throw that out. So anyway, we've got James, a servant of the Lord. And then we have Jude, who writes this short letter. And look how he introduces himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, he, he does do a little name dropping, doesn't he? You know, think about it. Man, everybody knows my brother James. He's the leader of the church. He, he does throw that out there. He, he does say that. But like James, he just refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. There's a couple of words for servant in the Greek language. And pretty much what they denote is the level of servant, the hierarchy of servant uh, that one might be. And in, in the Greek language, the lowest form of a servant, probably what you and I would refer to as a slave. The, the lowest form is a doulos. That's the Greek word, doulos. And that's what this says here. Jude, a doulos. A doulos of Jesus Christ. James, I am a doulos. I'm the, I'm the lowest form. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Referring to yourself as... A, as a slave. Remember, James and Jude have a very unique experience with Jesus that nobody else has. They, they grew up in a home with him, right? I mean, talk about hearing, why can't you be like your older brother? And that would actually be a pretty good wish, wouldn't it? But you know, James and Jude, they're no different than you and me. They've got a sin nature. So you have to know there's a little bit of sibling rivalry going on there, a little bit of sibling jealousy. And, and, and again, we know that growing up in his earthly life, John chapter 7, verse 5, it says his brothers did not believe in him. They did not follow him. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 says that his brothers actually came to a point where they went to get Jesus because they thought he was crazy. You ever had a family member that was embarrassing you in the community don't raise your hand it might be in here but I, i'm guessing more than one of us have we've had a family member and oh my gosh what what did they say they, they did what and, and you know what's what's interesting this can be so frustrating and so tense when a family has a member of the family that they're embarrassed by frustrated with family will even start fighting each other on how they deal with the crazy one. And folks, that's what we're talking about here. That's how James and Jude and, and the other brothers, that's how they looked at Jesus. Man, we got we to go get him. Look what he's doing. Look what he's saying. And Mark, man, they go to gather him up. They go to get him. Now, how do you go from this mentality to, what did he do this time? Our brother is crazy. How do you go from that mentality to where the greatest joy in your life, the greatest pride in your life, is to introduce yourself as a, I'm his slave. How did, that, how did that happen? I think we get insight to that from 1 Corinthians 15. There's a group of verses kind of there at the beginning, particularly verse 7 for James, but a group of verses at the beginning that kind of are rehearsing, letting us know all of the places that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Oh, it was, it was to this individual, that individual, it was to this group of people. And it's going through and it's just giving us a list of all these places that Jesus appeared. And in verse 7, it refers to Jesus appearing alone to James. Peter got an audience like that too. That's the only two, I believe, that got to meet with Jesus alone after the resurrection. We don't. We don't know what, what they talked about, what transpired. But we can observe from history that it absolutely radically changed 
James' life. As a matter of fact, because of that meeting, he will become a radical communicator of the radically changed life message. I mean, what we are going to see in this book over and over is James basically saying, I just don't care what you say you believe. I just don't care to know what your doctrine is. Show me how your doctrine is fleshed out. Show me how your faith controls you, leads you, guides you. Show me how you live it, not what you believe. That's what we're going to see James carrying on in this message. You know, what I find interesting about about James is, is that he did kind of slip through the pages of history. And even the pages of Scripture. And I'm saying that's an assumption. I may not be right. But I'm assuming a lot of us maybe didn't know there was this James, the half-brother of Jesus. That he wrote a, a letter in the Bible. That he, that he was this big of a leader. We, we didn't even know that. Even, even though, I mean, you know Paul, right? Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We do know Paul, right? Somebody? And crickets out there. Okay. Yeah, did you know Galatians chapter 1 verse 19 says that Paul reported to James... It was James that authenticated his ministry and what he was doing. We come to Acts chapter 15 and the church is experiencing one of its first disagreements. You know, there was this theological issue and then based on that issue, how it was to be applied and played out. And they're not just disagreeing, they're disagreeing kind of sharply. Okay, this is, a, this is kind of a big dispute, and it's brought to the church in Jerusalem, this issue, and it's brought to James, and it's James that stands up and says, okay, here's the answer. Here's the answer, and here, here's how this is going to be played out. And, and that message goes to the church in Jerusalem. That message goes to a church in, in Antioch. So, I mean, folks, James is, James is huge. And he, yeah, we didn't even know him, did we? And, and I'm guessing he would be okay with that. Because he's really not about what you know about him. But boy, is he about you knowing his half-brother, Jesus Christ. Well, when we look in history, what we learn of James is he was a, he, he was a man of great faith. He was a, a man of obedience. He was known for being very godly. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was known. One of the things he was really known for is that he was always at the temple praying. They gave him a nickname uh, because he was always at Temple Rank. They called him Camel Knees uh, because his, his knees were so wobbly and big and probably kind of ugly looking. But they got that way because he was always on his knees in, in prayer. You know, it made me think, I wonder if somebody was going to give me a nickname based on observing my prayer life. I wonder what that nickname would be. We don't need to have a nickname for our prayer life. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think it's important that you've you got to have a nickname for your prayer life. But that's what they observed about James and, and actually started had a nickname for him, Camel Knees. What, what do you think your nickname would be? You know, James was also known as being a person uh, above reproach. I mean, they could, they could just find nothing wrong with James. Doesn't mean he was a perfect person. But, but he lived above reproach. One of the ways in history that we know that is his, his enemies could not find anything to accuse him on. The church is under great persecution. There's this organization that they want to bring down. You want to bring down an organization. Sometimes you shoot for the, the leadership. You bring down the head and then the, the, the organization gets fractured. And, and so, man, they're constantly going after James, attacking James. And they, and they, just, they didn't even have a ticket for jaywalking, nothing. 
And they can't find anything to bring this guy down on. So kind of dawns on them one day, hey, we don't need a reason. We can just go arrest him. We've got the authority to do that. So they go and, and they arrest him and they, and they give James an opportunity to recant his faith. And he stands up and, and just boldly and confidently says, the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, is the Son of God. That great truth. There's no way I call him, reduce him to my brother. He is the Son of God. A church historian by the name of Eusebius says at that point they took James up to the top of the temple. You know what? It would probably be about the height as you pulled into church today, about the, the, right here in the center of our building, right? It'd be about that height, three, four stories high. They took him up to the top of the temple and they, and they threw him off. Obviously, when he hits the ground, I mean, he's going to sustain life-ending injuries in that. But, but when he hit the ground, he, he did not die immediately. And so they, they surrounded James and they beat him with clubs until he drew his last breath. Meeting his brother as the Son of God not only changed his life, it cost his life. That's the character of the person who wrote us this letter. That that's who he was. That's, that's what he was like. That's his commitment. That's what's on his heart and his mind as he writes this letter to you and to me about a real faith. You say Jesus is in you. You say you're a Christian. And, and what we're going to see in this book then is he's going to say, okay, let's take what you're saying and, 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 let, and let's measure that. And he's going to start working through some very practical issues like next week, James chapter 1, verse 2. Hey, man, what? Hey, when's it hard to believe? How about hard times? You hit hard times. That's what, man, is there a God? How can God allow suffering? How can God allow evil? Why won't God answer my prayers? Where, where's God in the midst of all? I mean, man, nothing attacks your faith like hard times. And you know what James says? What, what you, hard times? Your, your faith is bowled over by hard times? Man, when hard times hit, that's when you ought to, and a lot of you know this first, count it all joy. Jo are you kidding me? What would you consider a hard time in your life, the last year, the last 10 years? An abuse, a, a betrayal, plaguing questions about God's goodness and where, what, what would you be for you a hard time? James is going to say, hey, listen, if you've got real faith, you seize that hard time. You count it as joy because this is your opportunity for God to do some great things in your life. So that's what I'm saying. This is hard hitting. He said, James, you're crazy. You're just, not, you're just not being respectful of what I've been through at all. Here's another one we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. James said, oh, you got a real faith. Oh, Jesus is living in your life. Has Jesus living in your life controlled this monster right here behind your lips? It's a short book, five chapters. And in two different places, he's going to talk about the untamable tongue. The poison the poison that pours forth from people who say Jesus is in my life. The cursing, the lying, the slandering, the gossip. This is crazy. 
This is great. There's just no way Jesus is living here. And out of that fountain of the life of Christ spews forth this poison. There's no way. There's no way. Oh, man, that's pretty hard hitting. Do we want that? (laughs) Do I want somebody up in my face? Do I want somebody punching holes in my Christianity? You know, James isn't doing this because he's mean. He's not doing this because his job is to go around and condemn Christians and judge them. He's doing this because of what he wants for you. He said, what does he want from me? You know, a a great place to get a picture of what James wants for you is from Psalm 15. This is an interesting psalm. I, I wouldn't say necessarily that James was... Going down through Psalm 15, checking each line. But, but there's a real relationship. And by the way, as we talk about authors, remember there's one great author, right? There's one big writer of all the books of the Bible, and that's God. And so obviously it's going to relate. But there appears to be a real relationship between Psalm 15 and, and the book of James, the letter of James. And, and in, this, in this psalm... I think you hear very clearly what James wants for you and me. What he wants with God and what he wants in a product of your life. Listen to this. Psalm 15. It says, Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Now that's a highfalutin way of saying, Who gets to live with God? Who who gets to eat supper at God's table? And it be natural. And it be good. Who gets to do that? And so then the psalmist begins to answer the question. Here's what kind of person lives in God's house. Here's what kind of person eats supper with God. And he says, those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. I hope you've got other plans for dinner. Because that leaves all of us out, doesn't it? Man, I'm, I'm, I've already missed. <laughs> I, I've not let a blame. I can be blamed for some things. Do, does what is right? Well, sure. I, yeah. Every now and then I, I get a hold of the right thing and do it. But my goodness, I've got a lot of places where I didn't do the right thing. Here's who gets to sit there and eat dinner with God. Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. Now listen to all these statements about the tongue. And this is going to be a big deal with James. Those who, who speak truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to slander others or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Oh my goodness, we've never spoken evil of our friends, have we? Okay, let's move on. Verse 4. Those who despise persistent sin- sinners and honor faithful followers of the Lord. You know what that's a reference to, folks? It's talking about where's your affinity Is your affinity for God's people or is your affinity out there in the world? Now, obviously, when I'm sitting here in this building, my my affinity is for God's people. But what about the other six and a half days? Where's Who am I connected to? What am I connected with? This is talking about, hey, listen, the one who's eating dinner with God has a heart for God's people, is connected to God's people, is building life with God's people, not with those committed to a way that rejects God, Not to those who are committed to living different from God. Last line of verse 4. And keeps their promises, even when it hurts. Keeps their promises even when it hurts. Verse 5. Those who do not charge interest on the money they lend and who refuse to accept bribes 
to testify against the innocent. You know, when we get, as we walk through James, we're going to see a couple of places. He's really in tune with those who are being abused in society. Those who are, they're just easy targets. They, they get taken advantage of. They're going to continue to get taken advantage of. It's just their personality, where they are in life, whatever it might be. James says, hey, what does that mean to you? He's really interested in our relationship with those who just can't quite get a foot up. They just can't quite make it. Are, do we take advantage of people? Do we take advantage of maybe situations that, that people are in? After talking about the kind of person that is sitting at the dinner table with God, he closes with this line. Such people, those kinds of people, they stand firm forever. So that's, that's what James wants for you. He wants for you the life, the opportunity to stand firm. You stand firm when the storms come. You stand firm when the enemy comes. You stand firm when the doubts come. You stand firm when they're suffering. You stand firm even in death. Because God gets you a chance to stand firm forever. That's what he wants for you and me. And the last thing James wants is for you and I to kind of walk through life with this faith that's not real. Because we could possibly be in danger of living an entire life holding on to a faith that is worthless. A faith that is meaningless. And then we don't stand firm forever. And we don't get to eat supper with God. Now, as James does that, folks, I want to I be clear here. Some people see the letter of James almost as a contradiction to the rest of the New Testament. They would say, man, Paul brought us faith. Hey, those who lead a blameless life, that's not me. I'm, all, I'm already out of the running for, for supper with God. So if I'm going to have dinner with the Lord, it's going to take something. I'm going to have to get in on somebody else's ticket. And, and that's what Paul teaches. You can get in on Jesus' ticket. He'll pay the price. He'll pay the penalty. Count on him. Trust in him. We're saved by faith alone. And then James comes along and says, man, I, hey, faith can be empty. Faith can be dead. Faith can actually be meaningless. And so they hear James as contradicting. But he's not contradicting. Kind of think of both of them standing at the cross. And Paul is looking back into your unsaved life and saying it's faith that is going to save you. James is looking into the Christian life saying, okay, you're saying you have faith. What's the product of that faith? What, what is that faith doing? Because if there's no product, that's not a faith God gave you. That, that's not a faith that saves. And he doesn't want you to wind up at the end of life holding on to the wrong faith. And folks, that's where the series title came from, In Gear. It's like having a car sitting out in the driveway. That's my car. Look at my car. Man, it's a great car. And I go out and I sit in my car. I don't go anywhere with it. But I sit in it. Maybe I turn it on once or twice a month and rev the engines really loud. All the neighbors know I got a car. But if, if, that, if that car is never actually transporting me somewhere, then what's that car worth? Ultimately, it's meaningless. And that, that's what Paul's saying with our faith. He's not saying works save us. He's saying if you've got a saving faith, it works. It gets in gear. There is a product. There is a difference between a person 
when Christ is in their life and when Christ is not in their life. And folks, I think what's crazy, I think we live in a culture today where there's a lot of Christendom that really has come under the idea that you can have faith in Christ and it doesn't change a thing. You just, you just go on as is. And so James is going to, he's going to challenge us to work. But I, here again, this is where I don't want to be confusing. James is not challenging you to work harder. He's not challenging you to be better. You need to be more religious. You need to look more like a Christian. No, he doesn't want that for you. He wants your faith to be real. And a real faith is going to produce these other things. I don't know. It could sting a few places. Oh, that hurt right there in the gut. But I think, I don't know about y'all. James has won an audience for me. I, I, I want to hear what he has to say. I, I want to see what he's talking about. He, he seemed to live and demonstrate the real thing. He, he's a life that didn't believe, and then he came to believe, and then he shows us what that's like. You want to hear from him this year? See what he's got to say to us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the scriptures. That introduces to you, to who you are, to what you're like, to the, to the things you've done. These scriptures also tell us who we are and what we're like and what needs to be done. Your scriptures answer every question. They deal with every issue. They give us guidance and everything we need to walk through this life in every kind of issue and every kind of relationship. One of our issues is whether we come to faith or not. But then having come to faith, maybe... Lord, an issue becomes, is, is our faith real? Is it genuine? And I thank you for your word that, that guides me. Man, I, I want to know that I've really believed. I want to know that I'm saved. Well, Lord, I thank you for showing me what a belief that saves looks like. So that I can measure, so that I, I can evaluate. And Lord, I pray that the product of our walking through this letter in these weeks ahead, these months ahead is that some in here will come to a true and saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That they'll realize that they were counting on the wrong thing. And today, next month, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, they'll finally see it and come to faith in Jesus. Lord, I know that many of us in here, we do have a genuine saving faith. And I pray that as we walk through this, it gives us a confidence in our faith. But also helps us give some direction into what that faith should be producing. And we can, we can get focused on getting this faith in gear. For you're so worthy, our Lord. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your servant James and the letter that he wrote to us. And I pray that you'll bless these words in our lives. Wherever we are, whatever we're going through. Whatever unfolds in these months ahead. Bless these words in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.